Have you ever had a dream that disturbs you greatly, that you wake up and you actually remember it in more than just for a couple of minutes, and its vividness stays with you? When I was working on this talk, and I was sitting at my desk, I tried to remember such a... Uh, such a dream as that, and I didn't remember one. I have it in my notes. I said, I, didn't rem- I don't remember one. I know I've had them. But then this morning when we were praying, I remembered the dream of me preaching for six hours, and then all of a sudden coming to, and Dickie's the only one there except for some guy asleep on this side. I remember the vividness. You know, the Lord still hasn't told me what that dream meant. If he has, I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring him. <laughs> uh, so what, what are dreams? Strictly speaking, dreams are images and imagery and thoughts and sounds and voices and subjective sensations experienced while we sleep. Dreams are most abundant when, and, most, and most remembered when they are in the REM stage of sleep. This is the deepest stage of sleep when our eyes are fluttering and our heart rate is, is inconsistent. And listen to this, we have paralysis of our skeletal uh, muscles. And that last thing sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? But you know, uh, I read that that's one of those things God does so that I don't beat Ann up in the middle of my dreams or you don't, uh, you don't do something horrible to your, your spouse while you're dreaming. God freezes your muscles so that you, you don't act out on those dreams when you're actually dreaming. One thing the Bible says about dreams in the Old Testament and in the New is that he uses dreams to speak to us. Numbers chapter 12, verse 6, Old Testament. Listen to my words. This is God speaking. When there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions, and I speak to them in dreams. Job chapter 33, verse 14. For God does speak, now one way, now another, though one, no one may perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when the deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and to keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. And so God says, I speak to dreams and and I warn people in dreams. In the Old Testament, we read that Joseph had all kinds of dreams. So did Daniel, and we'll study some of those in the weeks ahead. In the New Testament, we learn about dreams as well. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, it says, But after he, this is Joseph, had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, Joseph again has a dream, and the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, and take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt and stay there until... I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so God used dreams when Jesus was born into our world. Now, not every dream is the voice of God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I think it's verse 7. I just have the chapter down. I think it's verse 7. But it says, much dreaming and many words are meaningless, therefore fear God. In other words, not all your dreams are from God. And so I don't think my preaching for six hours from God, uh, was from, unless he was telling me to try to do that sometime like David Platt did uh, not too long ago. Dreams are open to abuse. Jeremiah 23, verse 32, indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send them or appoint them. And so some people use dreams to mislead every, someone else. I had a dream, they say, and God's saying this, and, and God says it's not true. Nonetheless, nonetheless, God speaks through dreams. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 17. In the last days, God says, this is Peter quoting Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Now, I think the evidence of this is found in the testimony of so many Muslims around the world who are having dreams of Isa. You know, the Lord Jesus, they don't know much about Esau, but they have dreams about him coming to them. And we've heard those stories, and there's lots of dreams like that. God is not limited to our physical world. He can and does use the spirit world, which I believe has to do with our conscience realm. In communication, I believe he communicates to us with dreams, and and those are found in the realm of the spirit. Now, with all that as context for us, Nebuchadnezzar, in our, story, in our continuing study of the book of Daniel, and by the way, if you happen to be our guest for the first time or you're just visiting with us today, you know the book of Daniel is our study on Sunday mornings. We just began last Sunday, and we did chapter 1, and this week it's chapter 2. And in verse 1 it says, Now in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Now, it tells us, as John read for us, that the king is greatly disturbed by his dream. It's his second year of reigning. I thought about this. Do you think that means that Daniel is only in his second year of training? Maybe Daniel is, remember Daniel's going to train for three years. Daniel was brought back with Nebuchadnezzar when he came back to take the throne. So, or maybe there was some time in between. Who knows? But this, Daniel may not even be one of the wise men at this point. He may just be a trainee in his second year. But the king has this very disturbing dream. And it seems like up until this point, what he would do is call in his magicians and his wise men. And he'd say, I had this dream. And he'd tell the dream, what does it mean? But on this particular case, he is not willing to do that. And he says to them, tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. Now, why he woke up with this hair, I don't know, but he woke up saying, I'm not going to do like I normally do. I'm not, get, I'm not going to tell you my dream and you tell me what it means. I want you to tell me the dream and then tell, you, then tell me what it means. They don't know you really know what it means. And they all push back and they say, hey, there's not a wise man alive that can do that. There's nobody can do that. What you're asking us to do is in the realm of the gods, they say. So, you know, and, but the king is resolute. He's not going to give up. And so he says, listen, I, you're stalling. Either give me my dream and interpret it, or I'm going to kill you all. I mean, he's pretty upset about this, and they can't do it. So Arioch, the captain of the guard, is dispatched to kill them. He comes to Daniel, and, he, and Daniel says, you know, what's going on? He says, Daniel, he tells him the story, and Daniel goes to the king, makes an appeal, said, give me a little bit of time, and evidently the king listens to him and gives him some time. So he goes home, he, he calls Ananiah, Mishael, and Azariah on the phone, and he says, listen, guys, pray. Pray. He says, listen, we need to pray because if God doesn't answer us, they're going to kill us too, right? Or maybe he didn't phone them, maybe he texted them. But anyway, he, he, got, uh, he got them on board with praying. And so they're praying with him. And that night, and that night, God tells Daniel what the dream is and what it means. Now, did he tell Daniel in a dream? Did he tell him in a vision? You know, I'm not sure, but I love Daniel's prayer. It's verse 20. John already read it, but let me read it again. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes them. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the dark, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, of my fathers. Now he's speaking to God. I mean, the whole thing is speaking to God. 
God. But in his prayer at first, he's talking about God. Now he says, God, you, my God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we have requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. And I'm not sure really whether we catch Daniel's excitement and praise in this, because remember, this is not anything Daniel can do. This is something only God can do, and God has chosen to do something that really is off the charts, uh, out of the norm. So Daniel goes to Arioch, and he says, take me to Nebuchadnezzar, I've got an interpretation. And I really love it, because when he goes back in there, Arioch says, hey, I found this guy. <laughs> you know, he's trying to take credit for whatever Daniel's about to do. And so the king says, can you tell me my dream and tell me what it means? And listen to what Daniel says. I mean, this is just so incredible. He says, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, this is verse 27, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to you, to, to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. Now, if you were here last Sunday, one of the things I said to you was that what Daniel did was confront culture. He confronted his culture, and he did so all the way to the end of his life. And, uh, and this is what I meant. This is what Daniel did. He confronted his culture and pointed them to God. And so what he says to Nebuchadnezzar is, nobody can do this. And there's no man. I can't do this. But God, there is a God in heaven who can, and God has done it for you. So notice this. Daniel points Nebuchadnezzar to God. Do you see that? That is what I was talking about last week, right? We hadn't got this far, and I hadn't actually read it even, but that's what I was talking about. Daniel is going to point men to God. These leaders of Babylon and, and the, the Persian, the Medo-Persian empire to follow, he is going to point them to God. But it doesn't just stop there. Look at the next verse, verse 30. In verse 30, Daniel says to the king, he says, But as for me, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than any other living man, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. I love this. Daniel could, could stand up and say, Yep, I'm really good, king. I'm, I'm the best one in your kingdom. But that's not what he says. In humility, he says, I'm not any better than anybody else. I'm just like everybody else. And this is God's doing. And God has done this because he wants you to know the meaning of your dream. He gave you that dream and he wants you to know the meaning of it. And I love his humility, don't you? And I tell you, folks, listen, if we're going to confront culture and we're going to do it the way Daniel did it, we have to, rather than taking some sort of pontificating position of superiority and somehow I'm better than you. Our, man, we need to be like Daniel and have this humility that the humility is what's going to impact the culture. And, and I, I can't help but believe it's Daniel's humility that, that is one of the things that's going to resonate with King Nebuchadnezzar. All right, we get to verse 31, and he's going to share with him the dream. Let's read the dream, beginning in verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were all crushed. All were, were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff. 
from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found, but the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The dream's pretty simple, maybe a little bit strange. It's not all that scary, but there is this statue, and the statue is made of four different metals. It has a head of gold, a chest of silver, a belly of of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet and toes of iron and clay. And the statue's not really doing anything. It's not chasing Nebuchadnezzar. It's just standing there. It's not speaking. It's not moving. We don't even know that it was a person, although most everyone agrees that it was, it was probably the statue of a man. But clearly what's unique about the dream is the different metals that make up, up the statue. Now, suddenly in this dream, a stone gets cut out. doesn't say cut out of where. We assume maybe it got cut out of a mountain, not cut by human hands. The stone... You know, I think the pictures, everybody has pictured this stone rolling down, down and hitting the feet of the statue, shattering the statue, shattering the, shattering the feet, and as the statue falls, you know, the whole thing is crushed by this stone, and, and to the point is, it's, just, it's ground up like chaff, which is the leftover part of the wheat, and it's blown away, and then the stone becomes this mountain that fills the earth. Again, not, not a scary dream, but a dream that troubled Nebuchadnezzar. Maybe it troubled him because he could remember it with such clarity. Some have suggested he didn't remember it, and that's why he was asking for them to tell him the dream. I don't think that's the case. I think he remembered it very vividly, and so he wanted them to tell him what the dream was. Now, note, note a couple of facts about the metal. There is progressive deterioration in value from top to bottom. So there's gold, silver, bronze, iron and in an iron mixed with clay. And by the same token, there is an increase in strength in the metals from gold, silver, bronze to iron. The metals are getting stronger, but they're also getting less valuable in, in the statue, in its comp composition. As soon as he's told the dream, Daniel launches into the interpretation. Now, let me tell you something about this. Daniel's interpretation is so precise that people who deny the spiritual nature of the Bible, the supernatural, people who don't believe that God speaks to man, don't believe that God can reveal the future or does reveal the future, they deny the book of Daniel. And they say the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel. It could not have been written by Daniel because this dream and some of the other dreams that Daniel's going to have are so absolutely historically precise that there is absolutely no way that Daniel could have written them unless God reveals it to him you know, and so since God doesn't exist and God doesn't reveal the future, Daniel must have been written by somebody hundreds of years after the time of Daniel. Everybody follow that? Now, I want you to know I don't believe that. In fact, one of my final applications, I'll give it to you now, is going to be that we need to trust the God of Israel, the God of Daniel, because, because of this book. That's one of the things. Um, but, but this book, this, this, pro, this dream is so precise. All right, all evangelicals agree on the interpretation of the kingdoms represented in the statue, but not the rock. And I'm going to share with you both views when we get to it. Verse 36 begins the interpretation. You got your Bibles? Follow along. This was the dream. Now we will tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, the glory, and wherever the sons of men dwell or the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hands and has caused you to rule over them. All you are the head of gold. In other words, we're going to start, king, and the kingdom of gold is you. It's, it's, and I don't think he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. I think each one of these things are speaking about kingdoms, not about the ruler of the kingdom. In other words, you know, uh, 
the Babylonian kingdom would have other rulers. The, the other kingdoms would have more than one ruler. I don't think he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar the person. He's talking about the kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar ruled at this point, which is the kingdom of Babylon. So Babylon is the first world empire. Um, it was the greatest, but not the strongest, according to the interpretation of the statue. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head. Verse 39, after you, there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, and then another third kingdom, obviously inferior to that of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. So Daniel continues. He says, in this dream, king, you're the head of gold, but there's two kingdoms that are coming after you, one of silver, one of bronze, and, and they're not going to be as great as yours. Daniel doesn't name the next two kingdoms, but uh, associates them with chronological order. Then he speaks of the fourth kingdom. He doesn't name it as well, but there's a fourth kingdom in line. Verse 40, then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces, implying that, that the kingdom is getting stronger as it goes, but inferior. In that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay, as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly pottery. So some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that, in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. So the last kingdom is going to be the strongest, but it's also going to be the weakest, it seems, as far as its strength or its glory, uh, symbolized, I believe, by the clay and the iron feet. Up to this point, those of us that believe the Bible have agreed on the interpretation. We see the progressive four kingdoms, and the four kingdoms are the following. These are the four kingdoms. So historically, these are the four kingdoms that everyone agrees with. They are the head of gold is Babylon. The chest of silver is the Medo-Persian. You can see the years and how long the kingdoms actually existed. The belly, thighs of bronze, the Greece kingdom, Greek kingdom, and then finally the legs of iron, the Roman kingdom from 63 to uh, 476. Now, some like myself see the iron and clay feet as representing the last days of the Roman Empire. Okay, the, the clay feet, this is, where, this is where we begin to have divergent understandings amongst those of us who believe the Bible, okay? And uh, for some of us, we believe that the clay iron feet represent the last days of the Roman Empire, and, uh, and which will, you know, it will eventually collapse, and, and the Roman Empire will divide into several smaller countries and people groups. However, others see the clay iron feet as a reconstituted Roman Empire that will arise thousands of years later under the leadership of one they call the Antichrist. In this view, it's highly significant that uh, the world as we know it today, Western civilization, is a result of the Roman Empire. In other words, the, the Roman Empire broke up, but much of what we have today is residual. The Roman Empire, the Western Civ, came out of that, including our United States. And so a number of folks see the clay feet as being a fifth kingdom, not a fourth kingdom, not part of the fourth kingdom, but a fifth kingdom that will arise uh, at this point, 1,500 years at least later, but it could be two, whenever Jesus comes back, that'll be this fifth kingdom that is, is coming back. It'll be a reconstituted Roman Empire in the future. Now, when uh, I was uh, a young man in my 20s, 
And I was, began to follow Jesus. This uh, was the prevailing view at the time. This was the view of which I grew up in church with. The feet were viewed as being the 10-nation European Union back in the 1980s and 90s when I, was a young, when I was a young man. I don't think anyone necessarily believes it's the European Union anymore, but they thought the European Union was going to reconstitute into an empire led by the Antichrist, and maybe that still might be, but that's going to be this empire that's going to be represented by the iron feet and, and clay, clay toes in the future. So that very well may be. Now, the last part of the dream is given to us in its interpretation. Let's look at verse 44 and following. In the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without, there it is, it's cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it's crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. And the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So that dream is true in its interpretation is trustworthy. So that's the heart of the dream, everyone. This is, I, I believe this is the word that God wanted to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar. And for us, by extension, uh, almost thousands of years later, more than 2,000 years later, God, this is the thing that God wants to communicate to us in this dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation. Now here's what he says. In the days of those kings, God himself will establish a kingdom represented by that stone, and that's, that kingdom is going to crush all the kingdoms of old. And it would be a kingdom that would never come to an end, never be destroyed, and would reign or, or live on forever and forever. Now, just as Christians interpret the feet differently, we also interpret the stone and the kingdom differently. They're actually tied together. Uh, they're actually tied together, the feet and the, and the coming ensuing interpretation of what the stone means. For those who hold to the idea that the feet are a separate kingdom from the iron kingdom, and it's going to be a reconstituted Roman kingdom in the future, then the stone represents Jesus at his return. It represents him coming and rolling, if you would, back into history and destroying the, the reconstituted Roman Empire under the reign of the Antichrist. He will destroy that and he will bring about his ensuing millennial kingdom. And so that's how folks understand the stone that's going to grow into the mountain. It would, be, it would be the return of Christ and the millennial kingdom where Jesus will reign on this earth, crushing all the other kingdoms under his feet. Now, for those of us who believe that the legs... Now, listen, because I want you to understand this. There's a big difference here. For those of us who believe that the legs and the feet represent the Roman Empire of yesteryear... And the feet representing the fact that it would come to destruction as it divides and is brittle because they don't have unity. The stone represents, listen, the present kingdom of our Lord and Savior, not a coming one. The kingdom of our God has come in the Lord Jesus. And his kingdom is what I believe God was prophesying in this dream. I believe that God is prophesying the kingdom of which you and I are now a part and I want to give you five reasons why I believe that, okay? And, and, but here's what I want to do as I do that. I want to be careful because even though I'm going to give you reasons why I believe the kingdom of Jesus has come and he is the stone that was when, when Jesus came, he was the stone that was cut out of the mountain without hands and his kingdom is the one that is described here. 
I want to say regardless, these five things are going to be true of either kingdom. Whether we're talking about the millennial kingdom or whether we're talking about the kingdom of God now, these things would be true of that kingdom. And I hope you'll be encouraged by these five things because this is what God wants to do in our heart today. He wants to encourage us. It really doesn't matter whether it's the millennial kingdom or whether it's the kingdom of Jesus now. These things, now I think it's important to have a thought as to what you think it is, right? But it's these five things that should encourage us. So here we go. Number one. Five reasons why I believe that the stone that was cut out is the kingdom of Jesus now and not, not the kingdom that's coming when, when he returns and sets up his, his kingdom on earth, if you would. I think his kingdom on earth has already come. The stone struck the days of the fourth Roman Empire, I mean of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire doesn't exist anymore. But in what sense could we legitimately say that even if an empire arises from the world today, that it is a continuance, it's a continuance of a reformation of the former Roman Empire? In Mark chapter 1, verse 14, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then we get to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I think, number one, the reason why the stone represents the kingdom of God that has come is because it hits the, I believe, the Roman Empire uh, and its clay feet. It hits it at the very end of its... It, it's going to bring about the fall of the Roman Empire. And I think Jesus instituted his, the kingdom of God. Number two, the kingdom of God will not be brought about by human hands or human effort. When Daniel shares the dream, he makes the point that the rock was cut out of the mountain without human hands. In the interpretation, he said it is the kingdom of God that he is building. And it's not going to be anything that God does. Now let me say here, this is where, you know, we can say the kingdom of God has not come. I'm assuming we can say the kingdom of God has not come and it's coming in the future. I think the scripture teaches us that the kingdom of God has come in the Lord Jesus. But here's number two, and it definitely, regardless of whatever these two things you believe, whether the feet represent a millennial kingdom years later, or whether you believe it's the coming of Jesus, here's one thing that we need to know. It's going to be without human hands. God's going to build his kingdom not by guns and bullets and what we do. God's going to bring about his kingdom on his own. And so we go back to the time when Jesus was on the scene. And Peter says, he says, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, you're right. And God has revealed that to you. And I, and upon that rock, upon that confession, I will build my church. In Mark, we read that men were testifying against Jesus. And he said he would destroy the temple and, and not made with hands. He would destroy the temple made with hands and rebuild one three days later, not made by human hands. And here's their quote about that quote. Okay. And I believe what they're saying, I believe they're repeating exactly what Jesus said. And I used to think he was talking about his own body, that he was going to rebuild his own body. But in what sense was his own body made with human hands to start with when he came on the scene? It wasn't the work of man, it was the work of God, right? And so I think what Jesus is talking about is that he, you know, when, when he's going to destroy the temple made with hands, something that he would do in 70 AD, but he is going to, with his resurrection, build a new temple, not made with hands, a temple that he is going to build. And so in Peter it says that we are the living stones that are being 
being built into that temple. God is going to build his temple, not with human hands. Number three, the kingdom of God would start small like a stone, and it would come down, and it would crush the feet of, of this statue, and it would fall down and pulverize it, and then it would become a mountain that would fill the earth. Now, I believe this is what Jesus taught about his coming and his kingdom. He said his kingdom would start very small and become something that fills the earth. He told two parables, Matthew 13, 31 through 33. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field and is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it's fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree that the birds of the air come and nest in its branch. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a, man took, a woman took and hid it in three pecks of flour until it was all leveled. Now, there's three ways in which the kingdom, a kingdom can grow. It can grow in territory, it can grow in power, and it can grow in subjects. Now, Jesus, Jesus' territory cannot grow. I mean, he, he owns all the earth. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is the, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. This kingdom can increase in territory. The world is the Lord's. Neither can Jesus' kingdom increase in power. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. And so he has all power. There is no more power for him to get. There is no more world for him to get. They belong to him. The only way his, his kingdom can increase is it can increase in subjects. It can increase in people who are bowing the knee to this king. And, and so... I, this is what I believe Jesus is saying. His kingdom is going to start small. That's what he said in those parables, but it's going to fill the whole earth. And so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. In other words, the kingdom of God has been growing and is getting bigger and is getting bigger. And the kingdom of Jesus has been growing ever since the day our king walked the earth. And it's filled the four corners of the earth. And the gospel has reached not just the four corners, but the gospel is going out now. We are his people attempting to take the Bible, the word of God, the gospel into all the nations of the world. We're trying to take this kingdom to everyone. It's increasing in its growth. Number four. And by the way, I thought it'd be encouraging because the kingdom of God is growing or it will grow to fill the whole earth. Number four. The kingdom of God would crush all the kingdoms, and Jesus' kingdom will all be all that's left. Now, believe it or not, historians believe that Christianity brought about the downfall of Rome. Will Durant, in his book Caesar and Christ, wrote, and I quote, The greatest of the historians held that Christianity was the chief cause of Rome's fall. For this religion, he and his followers argued, had destroyed the old faith that had given moral character to the Roman soul and stability to the Roman state. Christianity had preached an ethic of non-resistance and peace when the survival of the empire had demanded a will to war. Christ's victory had been Rome's death. 
An ever-increasing kingdom of Jesus has affected the world. And if you know your theology, you'll know that for years, because of this verse, there was this thing called postmillennialism. And postmillennialism said that the gospel would continue to increase the earth, increase the earth, as it says, this mountain would cover the whole earth. And they thought that eventually the gospel would overcome the world, crushing all the kingdoms under its weight until Jesus was Lord over all. In postmillennialism, Christians used to believe that we would hand the kingdom to Jesus, having all the other kingdoms in the world been destroyed. Now, many of you don't find that interpretation satisfactory, and uh, you want Jesus to bring out the big guns and destroy his enemies. Man, I, I tell you what, do I speak for you when I say, boy, wouldn't it be nice if the gospel did? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice if the gospel itself would... would change the entire world so that men, all men followed Jesus. That, that would be great, but it doesn't seem to be our experience, and it doesn't seem to be, I don't believe, the testimony of the Word of God uh, as a whole. Okay, but here's what I want you to see. Regardless of which of these two views you believe the, the last part of the feet, the last part of the iron represents, whether it represents a whole other kingdom coming in the future or whether it's the end of the Roman Empire, here, here's what it means. Jesus is reigning in heaven now, regardless of what you think about the future. Jesus is reigning in heaven now, and he is returning and he is returning, where he will destroy every kingdom, he will destroy every nation and every people, and every person even, who does not love him in faith. Jesus will reign to destroy them all. And his kingdom and his kingdom will alone survive. In Isaiah 66, the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes, For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. God has promised this new world that's going to be redeemed and restored and glorified. And here's the promise. The promise is of an eternal life and a culture where Jesus is our physical king. And, and he will reign over all the kingdoms of the earth. There won't be any other kingdom. And finally, and finally, the reason that I believe that Jesus is referring to his present kingdom, and of course its culmination coming at the end, is the fact that the kingdom of God will never be destroyed. And this is what it says about Jesus uh, in the scriptures. In the interpretation, Daniel says that the kingdom of his God, the kingdom of Messiah, the stone that's going to be cut out of the mountain and come, would last forever. When the angel announced the incarnation of God, it is said in Luke chapter 1, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Yeah, maybe that kingdom's going to start when Jesus comes again, but I think it started now. And I think Jesus reigns from heaven now. Peter says of Jesus' kingdom that it's eternal. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. 
So I believe, that, beloved, that the kingdom of God has come. Jesus, Jesus is the, is the stone that was cut out of the mountain. And he's the one that came and he has hit the feet of that statue and it has crumbled and he will crush to death all the kingdoms of the world. And he is the one who, is gonna re who reigns forever even now. His kingdom will last forever. His kingdom will fill the earth even as it's doing now. In verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar responds to Daniel's interpretation. He says, the king Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and he made him ruler over the whole providence of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. And Daniel made request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon until Daniel, while Daniel was at the king's court. So as anyone be, Nebuchadnezzar was just astounded. He was amazed. Uh, he made him leader of the wise men. It says he paid him homage, which means he honored him. It also says that he fell on his face before Daniel. I'm not sure what that means. That seems to be an act of worship almost. Regardless of how you look at it, though, whatever happened in Nebuchadnezzar, he was so astounded by this. Daniel said, let me put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over all the territory of Babylon, and I will be here with you in, in the kingdom, in the, in the capital. And, and the king agreed to that. And this is the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar turning towards God. Look at what he says. Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Watch as Daniel's heart turns towards the Lord. Notice here he says, surely your God is a God of gods. There'll come a time where he'll say your God is the only true God. Now let me end with three applications for us today from this dream. Regardless of regardless of whether the, Messenia, uh, the, the, the stone is Jesus' kingdom now or whether it's his kingdom that's to come. Let me give you three applications that, that apply to all of us. The first one is this. Trust the God of Daniel and his word. Trust the God of Daniel and his word. Trust this God who was able to reveal history in, in such a, and, and again, it's not just this dream, but it's others that you will see that they are so true to history that those who deny the supernatural say Daniel couldn't have read it, uh, written it. But if Daniel wrote it and we believe that he did, then it's revealing to us that we have a God who knows the future. We have a God who knows all things. And that God can be trusted. And his word can be trusted. Trust his word. Let his word, let his word influence and correct your conscience. You know, this morning in Sunday school, we were talking about how God gives us a conscience. He, 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 puts, he puts his law within our hearts. Now, we can corrupt our conscience. We can corrupt it. We can sear it. We can mess it up. But, you know, he gives us his word to, to, to kind of govern and help us with our consciences. Trust the word of God, everyone. Believe God's word. Number two. God's intention is to rule this world as he himself, the Lord Jesus, will sit on the throne of this world forever. I think we all would agree that right now Jesus rules from heaven. He is Lord, he's king, he's God. But notice that the Messiah's kingdom will fill this earth. He's going to rule this earth. He's going to reign on this planet. And his kingdom will fill this world and last forever and forever and forever. And, and so be encouraged by that. 
Be encouraged. I told everybody last Wednesday, man, I am, I am so encouraged by this hope, this promise that God is bringing his Jerusalem to our world and he will dwell among us and he will be our king in our midst and we will see him face to face and touch him as Peter and John and all the rest did. We sang a song that says Jesus robed himself in human flesh and you know part of me just Part of me didn't like that. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't robe himself in human flesh. Jesus takes on our humanity forever and forever and forever. He's not, he's not divesting himself. He's not taking it off sometime in the future. He's been made like us forever. And he's been glorified, and we're going to be glorified with him. And that's the, that's the neat promise of the scripture. But note that this dream says the kingdom of, this, of our God is coming to this world, and all the other kingdoms of the world will be crushed under the weight of his glorious power and honor and personage. Number three, God's hope is that you might choose to become one of his subjects. If you think about it for just a moment, think about it with me. I mean, the earth is the Lord's. I mean, it's all His. He made it, and He'll one day rule over all of it. It's His. I mean, it's not, it's not like it belongs to anyone else. If anyone else has it, it's only, because, it's only because Jesus is letting Him rule temporarily in some sort of, in some sort of kingdom. But the, it belongs to the earth. I mean, the earth belongs to the Lord. And think about this. All power belongs to Jesus. He is God. He has all power. It's his. I mean, he, he's not going to increase in power in the years to come. He doesn't get better at it. He doesn't get stronger at it. But there's one way in which his kingdom can increase. His kingdom can increase by you becoming a part of it, by you choosing, by you choosing to, to receive the Lord Jesus as your king, by you making a choice, I want to bow my knee to King Jesus. Now, here's what the Bible says. There's coming a day where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But you know what? You have the privilege now, today, to bow the knee to Jesus. You have the privilege, and, and I, I would say to you, you have the, maybe it's not obligation because God's given you the opportunity to not trust in him. But you know what? You have the privilege of being a part of his kingdom. You have the privilege of, of loving this king who gave so much for you. You have the privilege of bowing your knee to him and you receiving him as your king. That's your privilege and opportunity to be a part of his kingdom. At the very end of Revelation, God says, then I saw, or John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready for a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. I mean, what a promise. No more broken relationships. No more hurt feelings. No, no more death. No more crying. No more broken bones. No more hurricanes. No more tornadoes to rip your house apart and to kill your loved ones. I mean, no, no, none of that. See? Because God himself is going to dwell among us. 
And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Man, I'm crushing all the, all the kingdoms of the past, and my kingdom alone will rule and be. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. To the one who thirsts, to the one who wants it, I will give him water from the spring the water of life from the spring without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Here's what I offer you today. I offer you the opportunity to be a son, a daughter of God. I offer you an opportunity to be a part of his kingdom today, now, so that you will forever be a part of his kingdom. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and the idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, I look at it and I say, hey, you guys are all my brothers and sisters and you are in the kingdom. But you know, there just may be somebody here who's not. So if you're not in the kingdom, today is the day. Come to the king, trust the king, love the king. I mean, the king's kingdom has come. I mean, it's coming in some sort of fullness way in the future where, where heaven will be joined to our earth and all sin and unrighteousness will be done away with and God will make all things new. Yes, that's coming in the future, but you can be a part of the kingdom today. You can belong to the king today and the king can begin to make changes in your life that, that you just can't imagine the goodness of the king in your life today if you are willing. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.